This is History West Midlands. The image of weeping mothers standing on the platform of a railway station as their children are evacuated to safety has become iconic of the Second World War. However, the stories of these often very ordinary women are forgotten, inadvertently overshadowed by the experiences of the children. Now, in her new book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, Professor Maggie Andrews of the University of Worcester sets out to redress the balance of history, telling the stories of the women who wave goodbye to their children. In this programme, she talks to the publisher of History West Midlands, Mike Gibbs. Maggie, a significant part of your new book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, focuses on those mothers who had to wave goodbye to their children. Could you introduce us to these women? There were thousands and thousands of mothers across the country who at various points in time in the war made the decision that their children's safety required them to release control of their children, to allow them to be evacuated, sometimes not even knowing where to, most of the time to complete strangers. They gave up their control of their children. They gave up the everyday care of their children because they felt that that was going to keep them safe from bombing or from invasion. I think for all these mothers, it was a tortuous, tortuous decision. And the angst about it, because we have very few memories from the mothers. The angst about it comes through in the stories that the children tell themselves of mothers who couldn't bear to go to the station, they couldn't understand why they were taken away by their father or their elder siblings and all they could see behind them was their mother with her head in her apron standing at the doorstep. Mothers who the government were very well aware were going to be upset about this and who were therefore kept back from the railway platforms so that they couldn't go too close, they couldn't grab their children back again. Mothers who, in a very angst way, prepared their children to go in the days before, earnestly sort of packing bags for them, checking that what they'd got was correct, showing teachers and social workers how they'd carefully prepared the bags of clothes and things for them to take, getting themselves in debt in order to buy the requisite clothes that they felt their children needed, cleaning those clothes, ironing those clothes, packing them up, stories of them being fixated. Women like Irene Weller's mother, who really showed their anxiety by focusing on minute caring issues to get their children prepared, as Irene recalls. We must get these polished. It's very important. I suppose it gave us something to do to stop crying. And she kept going over the list of things we had to take, toothpaste, toothbrushes. But being poor, we only had one tube between the three of us. And she kept saying, I don't know how you're going to manage if you split up. I just don't know. And many of these families were very poor because they were living in high-risk areas for bombing in the central areas of the city. That must have posed specific problems for families who may have had a fair number of children but very little resource. Yes, many 
working class mothers in urban areas, Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, London, they got by, if that makes sense. They shared toothpaste, towels, all those things between their families. They financially could cope by the elder children going out to work and helping contribute and the younger children contribute. They got by by some of the work that they did. All of those things made actually the managing and the providing for children who were going to be evacuated separately because they were evacuated by school, so older children might be going somewhere different from younger one. They might be divided by their gender. All that made it actually quite problematic to care and look after them and provide for them appropriately. And that created a lot of stress for them and difficulties. One story sticks very firmly in my mind of this Liverpool mother with six children who basically had one towel in the household. And because she had these different children, she was supposed to pack for them separately. She cut the towel into six different pieces and sent them with something no better than a face cloth, really, as the only way of providing a towel for them. I mean, it is an example of the tension, the trauma that they were going for as they tried to provide for them. So it must have been particularly traumatic for mothers like that. But even for well-off families, this must have been a trauma. Yes, it was a trauma. And, I mean, some were sending, if you were better off, you maybe knew where your children were going to. Some mothers made this terrible decision that actually their children were only safe abroad. Vera Britton's autobiographical writing is, because she writes beautifully, but also because she describes the emotions, is strongest on this, where her two, her son and her daughter, were sent to America for many good reasons. And she describes the arrival at Southampton Docks and seeing the boat that was going to take them away. Now that the moment has come, my legs suddenly feel as though they will no longer sustain me. Oh, my darling children, is there time to call you back from salvation even now? Beyond the enclosure, we see now the grey-painted hulk of the anonymous liner, waiting to carry away from us the dearest possessions that are ours on earth. You have mothers who talk about, you know, we're relieved to see they're getting away to safety. We know they'll be all right now. And others who are just frightened, where will they be going? Because particularly in 39, they had no idea what part of the country they would be going to, whether it would be easy for them to go and see them or it would be a tortuous train journey from London to Wales, which was no easier then than I think it is now. Um, So I think very, very mixed emotions, very highly charged, which, of course, is why the government had the police on the railway station platforms. Mass observation observers were standing on the stations, literally writing down notes, wonderful, wonderful source for us, of the mothers who are in tears when their children have left, who can hardly speak, who are breaking down afterwards, even though they've been so brave when they've said goodbye to their children. Women are quiet and all gaze towards the platform, some mopping their eyes with handkerchiefs. The children are about 50 yards away down the platform. We can't do any more, says one woman. Thank God they've gone. About one in three of the women are weeping unobtrusively into their handkerchiefs, wiping eyes quickly from time to time, and keeping handkerchiefs screwed up and wet in their hands. And what coping strategies did mothers employ? Mothers sought to find ways of continuing to care and mother for their children. And some of those are quite straightforward, so they write letters or they send them parcels. A lot of them go and visit their children if they're not too far away, and they visit 
quite early on in order to assess the nature of the billet. A lot of them changed the billet, even though the children were quite happy where they were, because then they controlled where the billet is. But they also worked out all sorts of different methods of communicating with their children and finding ways that their children could send them messages home as to whether they were okay or not, and in particular, Terence Frisbee's mother. You find out the address of the place where they take you. Write it on the card there. She looked at us both. She had left us space. Now this is the code, our secret. You know you write kisses, don't you? We agreed with, ugh, yuck noises to brandish our distaste for such things. She waited for the ritual to subside. You put one kiss if it's horrible and I'll come straight there and bring you back home. Do you see? You put two kisses if it's all right and three kisses if it's nice, really nice. Then I'll know. And how often did they correspond with their children? It was very varied. Some wrote very diligently two, three times a week. Some went to see them quite frequently. Some, if they weren't very far away, so if someone, for instance, is evacuated from Birmingham to Staffordshire, they might be seeing their parents every week. Others actually won't see them for years and every mixture in between there. What we do know is that from the surveys that were carried out at the time, particularly the Barnet House survey carried out in Oxfordshire, that the frequency of visits and the frequency of letters makes a huge difference to how well the child settles down. Out of 217 unaccompanied children, 85, 39%, received two or more letters a week and or a visit once per month. 105, 48%, received one letter per week and or a visit per quarter. And only 27, 13%, received less than this. Assessment revealed that only 11% of evacuations with children receiving infrequent letters and visits were highly successful, as against 44% of those with a high frequency of contacts. You talk about visits by mothers to these billets. That must have put a strain or could have put a strain on the relationship between children and mother and also mothers and those who were caring for their children. Yes, the visits could be stressful for everybody concerned. The mother would discover the child was not necessarily as they had said goodbye to them. So maybe they'd picked up a regional accent. Maybe they'd started to talk in a style, in a manner, not just the accent, which they were not used to. And they found that quite disturbing. There are descriptions of mothers almost not recognising their children when they turned up to visit them because they've changed so much. There are also, you know, really upsetting stories of children who rejected their parents or hid from their parents because actually they were thrilled with where they were and they didn't want to go home. So the whole visit could create a strain. Then, of course, there was, actually, where were you going to go with your child? You're suddenly in the middle of a rural area you don't know. Now, in some cases, there are special canteens and reception places put on by the WVS and the WI so that they can go and have a day out away from the foster parents' home. In other cases, they also descended upon the poor foster parents' home and expected to be fed and looked after, and that caused all sorts of tensions. There was also a sense of tension around the sort of huge difference there might be in class, whether it's up or down, and social expectations that was surrounding where their children lived. Maybe their children were in 
accommodation that seemed to them sort of posh and uppity and their children were getting airs and graces and they didn't like that. Maybe their children were in conditions, which was fairly frequent in rural areas, where there were no loos or water in the house and they thought, you know, they were slumming it and this was appalling. So all of those things created a level of tension and the mothers were torn between if their child had settled in happily, they felt they were losing them. If their child was pining and unhappy, then they felt their motherhood and relationship was confirmed. But on the other hand, they wanted to bring them home because their child was unhappy. So there was this absolute, I suppose, quandary for them, even in visiting them, which some clearly found more than they could handle, to be honest. And that, I think, is behind some of the infrequent visits. And after the large-scale evacuation which took place when war was declared, there was the phony war. And as a result of that, nothing happened. There was very little, no bombing in many areas. Children returned. Yeah. How influential were mothers in bringing the children back? I think mothers were very influential in that, sometimes against the will of fathers and against their professional advice. Mothers were always weighing up a series of factors, and there are multiple factors in there. So no bombing makes it seem less scary to bring your child home. The provision of better air raid shelters makes it more likely they'll bring their child home. How good the billet is makes it less likely they'll bring the child home or how far it is. So they're constantly weighing these factors up. Now, they bring a lot of them back during the phony war, and particularly when they come back at Christmas to visit, and they're like, well, there's not much point in you going back again. You're quite happy here. There's no bombing. Then they make another series of decisions when the bombing actually begins in earnest in 1940. Some will then make a decision to have their child evacuated as fast as possible because of the emotional trauma that those children are suffering through the bombing. The children are frightened, many of them. You know, there's descriptions of them turning white, of them being shaky, of them being withdrawn. So at the point that you can see your child suffering from the bombing, they may make a different decision. Some literally to and fro them quite frequently, and are quite overt about that. We'll send them back to you, they say to foster mothers, if the bombing gets bad again. That can go seriously and horrendously wrong. I mean, there are numerous horrible tragedies in this. Obviously, the most heartbreaking must have been the tragedy of the mothers who sent their children away to safety, and then the children are killed as a result of either the war, the bomb that's jettisoned over the Isle of Wight, or as a result of not being used to rural living. So, for example, Eileen Hills, who was evacuated from Margate to Staffordshire. Like many, she was out to play during the day to get her out from under everyone's feet. She was playing with her friends out in the fields by a river, and she slipped into the river and she drowned. She was not used to rivers. She was not used to the dangers of the side of them. When it comes to the coroner's court and they hear the case about it, the coroner remarks how sad he is, not just that this child has died, but that it's not the first evacuee to have died in the River Trent recently. And we have other stories of children who, either from illness or from accidents or from bombs, have died when evacuated, and that must have been awful beyond belief. But also awful beyond belief must have been those children who were brought home by their mothers and were killed in the bombing in one of the major cities. Yes. They are always making this calculation. They are always very tetchy about foster mothers taking over control of their children. And so, for instance, when 
Kitty and Eric Brady from London, they are evacuated to Wales separately, but they're evacuated to Wales. And a not unreasonable desire by their foster parents, who are very fond of Kitty, is that if anything happened, if their parents were bombed and killed in London, they would have liked to adopt Kitty. They didn't want her to go to someone she didn't know. So they asked the parents to write a letter saying that if this should happen, they would be the ones who would look after Kitty permanently. And the mother was distraught. And this is not the only case where even a mention of adoption and the mothers just pull the children back. The father will not let them come back. But when he's ill, the mother takes the opportunity to bring the two children back to London in 43. And admittedly, the bombing is massively reduced. But what occurs is that they are at the Sandhurst Road School when that's bombed. And the bomb kills Kitty and it causes real damage to Eric. He's limps and he's in a hospital for several months and he's really in a bad way permanently as a result of it. Now, the poor mother is, of course, distraught beyond belief, not just on the day that it occurs, but for several weeks afterwards, absolutely racked by guilt. And then she visits every day her daughter's grave. And on one occasion when she's there, she sees the foster parents who yell a few things as they might at her. And she then really just has a complete and utter breakdown. She ends up in a mental hospital for quite a while. She ends up in a padded cell for quite a while. And even though she eventually at one level gets well enough to come home and look after her son, she is never the same afterwards. The levels of regret and guilt are monumental for her and unlivable with in many respects. And mothers must have also faced another horrendous situation, which is when their husbands were killed on active service. Yes, you have the situation that the children go away, but things are not static at home. Many fathers are on active service, and so some of the children, either from their mothers or from their foster mothers, learn of the death of their fathers. Sometimes that's the case that actually has occurred more often than now. Maybe one of the parents was already dead, and either from bombing or active service, the child discovers that they've become an orphan. So it does become a situation where mothers are, I suppose, wrecked by anxiety. And it's not a situation where even at the end of the war, they're going to be able to put it all back together again the way it was before. And as you say, at the end of the war, the children returned by when? Again, it depends on the mothers. The government brings them back in 1945 at the end of the war. Many mothers bring them back before then, some of them to them and fro with them. But the bringing of them back is not a straightforward process. The child that they've sent away may not be the child who comes back. Some of those who had their children evacuated abroad, so they really didn't see them for maybe three or four years, they talk about how the child they've got back seems to be the elder sibling of the one who went, and they've missed out this bit in between. There are some distressing stories about mothers who just actually feel the emotional bond with their children has been broken and they really can't love this stranger, it feels like, who's come into the house with a different accent, with a different way of speaking, a different attitude to the world. Sometimes it has to be said children play it up, as children will do. So you do get children who come back and give terrible stories of I had an awful time and I was starved and didn't have this, that and the other and then admit later that they've been doing this just to hype it up with their parents. But I think the child that comes back may not fit in to the environment comfortably. 
a number don't fit in to the degree that actually they go back to where they've been evacuated from. Some, the relationships are not good for many years on. Some, the mother is not the mother that they left as well. And I think George Emptich's story is very important in that. Eventually I got home. It was terrible. It was tiny, because I've been used to a great big house, although I wasn't allowed to run around in it. 270 acres. It was tiny. My father said, Your mother's in the front room, in the parlour. She was, so I went in the parlour, and there was this little old wizened lady laying in the bed, and they said, That's your mother. Of course, I was looking at her. She started crying, so did I. I never really got to know her after that, because later that year she died. Maggie is both a historian and as a mother yourself. What do you feel about the experiences of the mothers who waved goodbye to their children? I think it's so difficult. I think it's the extreme of the thing that all mothers at some point will face, that you have to make your children do things or make decisions for your children that you can see are in their best interests, but which they do not see in that way at all. So it's the worst definition of tough love, for want of a better word, where they're doing this incredibly brave and incredibly upsetting thing because it's most important that the children survive beyond anything else that they survive. The next layer down is that they are emotionally your children. Most important is that they survive, that they live. Maggie, thank you very much indeed for this fascinating discussion of the mothers of millions of children who were sent away from home and for exploring the responses of those mothers, which have been very poorly reported. I look forward to talking to you about other mothers' experiences in subsequent podcasts. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. In other programmes in this series, Professor Andrews sets the scene of the evacuation mothers those who left their homes and families to travel with their young children, and of the women who became foster mothers, sometimes for years. You can listen to these often heart-rending stories in our free app, HWM On Air, in the iStore. Or find them on our website, www.historywm.com, along with hundreds of other films and podcasts, all for free. Professor Maggie Andrews' book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, published by Bloomsbury Academic, is available in bookshops and from Amazon. Music